We're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. There's a story that's told from the life of William Randolph Hearst, who was a you know, owned a lot of newspapers back in the early, mid-1900s, very wealthy, and part of what he used his uh, wealth for was in, in acquiring an amazing, fabulous art collection. And, you know, he collected, you know, different paintings, different works of art uh, from, from around the world and spent a lot of his fortune on that. And he... Uh, there, there were a couple of paintings that he, he saw somewhere that he wanted, so he told his agent that worked for him in this area to go and acquire these paintings. And uh, this agent was uh, looking around the world and working uh, really hard to try to find uh, you know, these, these paintings, to try to acquire them. He just couldn't seem to find them. Uh, Mr. Hurst was getting impatient, kind of frustrated, kind of pushing on, them, on him to find him. So he, you know, looking really hard. And uh, finally, one day, he comes into Mr. Hurst's office. He's really excited. He's happy. He says, I found the paintings that you were looking for. And uh, William Randolph Hearst is like, that's great. That's awesome. Let's get them. Where are they? And his agent said, well, they're in your warehouse. So he had them, but he didn't know that he had them. <clears throat> and honestly, I think that's something of a parable of a lot of times how we live the Christian life. We have all these blessings in Christ that we've read about, but we often don't seem to know that we have them. We're looking for what we already have. Or sometimes we're confused about whether or not we have them, or we think they come and go, or we get them based on certain conditions. But I want you to think about something. If you think about Ephesians 1.3, I and mean, we've looked at this for weeks now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing when we act like we should. Is that what it says? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing when we come to church. And I came to church on Time Change Sunday, so I ought to get some extra blessings, right? Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing when I do a lot of good stuff. Is that what it says? Is that how we think sometimes? I mean, if we're honest, um, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. That's the location of our blessings. The Bible says that he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We get it all when we're saved and we always have it. The question is, are we going to believe it and use it? Sometimes we get confused about that, though, if we're honest. Sometimes maybe we're like I was uh, one year at Christmas. Now, um, my parents did a really good job when we were kids of making Christmas a really special kind of thing. And um, there was one year when I was a kid that the thing that I wanted more than anything in the world was an electric football set. How many of you know what an electric football set is? <laughs> There's a picture for you. Any of you remember that? How many of you had one when you were a kid? All right. It was pretty awesome. Some of you are like, what in the world is that? If you're under 30, it's Back in the Stone Ages, it was Madden. 
Okay, it wasn't on a screen, it was a little board, little guys ran on electricity, and two guys could have fun with it all day, just, just go with it, okay? So that, that's what I wanted, all right? And, and so, um, so my parents got me that for Christmas. Now, the, here, here, here's the problem, though. Um, a lot of you know my mom, she's a wonderful lady, godly lady, as honest as the day is long, and... Uh, to the best of my knowledge, in my 48 years, this is the only time in my life that she wasn't honest with me. and It was just temporary, but, but here's what happened. Uh, I found my Christmas present, okay? I found it in the basement. Uh, I, what? Every kid tried to find their Christmas presents. Uh, I mean, is this not true? Did you not try to find your Christmas presents before Christmas? How many of you did that? So some of you wanted to wait until Christmas. Okay. Uh, you had the fruit of the Spirit. You were patient. I wasn't. Um, so I, I found my Christmas present, okay? Now, normally if you found your Christmas present, what would a normal child do? No, you wouldn't open it. I mean, it wasn't wrapped. You, you, I mean, well, you might open it. Uh, you, maybe you're worse than me. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I think a normal child would like go to school and tell your friends, right, that you found your Christmas present and you're getting this. You, you know, it's kind of like you got one over on your parents, okay? I was not a normal child. Uh, I was a weird child, uh, apparently an idiot child at, at, at sometimes. Some things don't change a whole lot over the years. But instead of telling my friends that I found my Christmas present, I have no idea why I did this. I told my mom that I found my Christmas present. <laughs> now, that's an idiot move when you're a kid. Uh, I'm just telling you. Uh, so uh, I found my Christmas present. I told my mom, you know, who's always trustworthy. I mean, you know, she's honest as the day is long. But she told me in this particular case, you know, like I said, my parents really tried to make Christmas special. They didn't want me to ruin my own Christmas, apparently. Uh, I guess in her mind, she was protecting me from myself. She tells me that I really didn't find my Christmas present. I mean, that's what she told me. And then she followed that up by going and moving my Christmas present to some unknown <clears throat> location uh, in the FBI witness program or something where uh, it's not, nobody's going to find it. So I go back downstairs to look for it again because I think I'm kind of crazy now because I know I saw it and my mom, who's always trustworthy, is telling me that I, that I didn't really see it and it's no longer there. And like I'm just completely confused at this point, kind of think I'm losing it a little bit, don't really know what is uh, going on, but you know, after a few sessions with Dr. Arwood, I've worked through all of that. It's, yeah, I'm good now, but um, uh, you know, eventually I got the electric football set for Christmas, and you know, my mom told me what she did and everything. But like I said, for a while, I was confused. I thought I had this, but now it's not there. I don't really have it, and I'm just being honest with you. That's how a lot of times we live our Christian lives. We think God's blessed us, but then has he really blessed us? He ble I, the Bible says I'm blessed, but I did this or I haven't done this. You know, do I really have all this stuff? I, to me, you know, the book of Ephesians is an amazing book. And I hope you think so because we're going to be in it for a while. But, you know, but, but honestly, I don't even think we've gotten to the heart of the book yet. I think the heart of the letter is Ephesians chapter 2. And, and, and it's like, you know, we, we talked about how verses 3 through 14 are this one long sentence 
where, where Paul is just focused on the Lord and he's overwhelmed by the greatness of God and, and, he, and he burst out in this doxology of praise and he's uh, praising and glorifying God the Father for how he's chosen us and God the Son for how he's redeemed us and in God the Spirit for how he's secured us. And uh, now though, he kind of takes his eyes off heaven, so to speak, and, and he puts, it on the, puts them there on the saints in Ephesus. And you know one of the things that's so amazing about what he does here? You know, he goes from praising God to praying for them. I think in chapter 2 we start getting into the, the heart of what he really was you know, writing to them. I think you could make a case if you just wanted to boil the Bible down to one chapter, that you could make a case that Ephesians chapter 2 would be the chapter for that to be. But um, in the meantime, you know, he's praising God, he's praying for them. He's not focused on himself, which is pretty amazing to me because you know where Paul was when he was writing this? He was in jail. That's right. He was, he was chained probably to a Roman soldier. And, and if that's me, you know, I'm, I'm praying, God, get me out of here. I'm praying for me. That's what I'm thinking about. I, I'm focused on my circumstances and how unfair this is and that kind of thing. But Paul's praising God and he's praying for them. And, and, and that's a model for us. But I think it's also important for us to understand that the context of what he wrote here, that you know, these riches we have in Christ don't necessarily mean that everything in life is going to be smooth and easy and go exactly the way that we want it to go. But it means that we have the inner resources to overcome our circumstances like Paul did. And so he talks about praying for them. And the thing that I want us to understand up front as we look at this prayer is in the words of Warren Wiersbe, He's not asking God to give them what they do not have, but rather prays that God will reveal to them what they already have. And, and, and that's what God wants us to get today. Not, he, he doesn't want us to be praying to try to get something from him, but, but I, I think the main idea of this is he wants us to deeply understand and live like we actually possess all these blessings in Jesus Christ. He wants us to see what we already have and not spend our lives like William Randolph Hearst looking for something that already belongs to us or not spend our lives like me confused about whether or not I really had this or not. And here's what I believe. I believe if we really get this, believe this, understand this, live based on this in our individual lives and in the church, in our church, it'll change everything. Because, I mean, I feel completely inadequate to preach this text, if you want to know the truth. Um, you know, I've just been praying for me. God, open the eyes of my heart. Help me to really not just hear this, not just know about this, but to know you and to really believe this, to really live like this is true. Because if we really did that, I mean, you know, we talk about needing revival and having revival meetings and, you know, revival services and praying for revival. Listen, if we just believe Ephesians chapter 1, we wouldn't need revival. We'd be living out of the overflow, and the world would be experiencing the overflow of who Jesus is in us. So let's look at what he, what he says here, and in, in verse, starting in verse 15. 
He says, therefore, which connects back to what he just said, uh, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, which is two marks of any genuine Christian, faith in the Lord Jesus, love for the saints, he says, I don't, don't cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. So in an ongoing basis, instead of, instead of being in prison pouting, he's in prison praying for them. He's in prison thanking God for them. And here's what he's praying. He says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the glorious Father, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, let's look at some of the words here. There's a debate among Bible commentators. The word spirit, should it be capitalized or not? Is it referring to the human spirit or is it referring to the Holy Spirit? And I think the best interpretation is that it's speaking of the Holy Spirit working in the the human spirit of the redeemed. Then in a sense, it refers to both. Um, I think it has to be that because in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul told us that the only way that we can know, that we can discern spiritual things is through the Holy Spirit. If we're going to have wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, it's going to come from the Holy Spirit who lives in our spirit if we're genuine believers. So the Holy Spirit working in us to give us wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Knowledge of him refers to a personal, experiential knowledge of God. Not a knowledge about, not a head knowledge, but actually knowing him. Uh, revelation means an unveiling. It's God pulling the curtain back so we can see spiritual truth that we can't understand or see in our, on our own by our own human senses. Wisdom in the Bible always has an application, an obedience aspect to it. So it's saying that we would see, that we would know God, and that we would act based on that knowledge. And then at the beginning of verse 18, he says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Open the eyes of my heart that we could spiritually see in our inner man who God is, what he's done for us, who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. That's what he's praying, that we would know what we would have, that we would really deeply, truly understand these things and live based on these blessings that we have in Christ. And then he gives three specific requests that he's praying for. And, and that's what I want to what I want to focus on uh, this morning to help us to see what he was praying to God that they would get, because since it was put in the Bible, it's here for us too. That God wants us to get these things. Okay, so number one, we can deeply understand and live like our future is secure. God wants us to deeply understand and to live like our future is secure. Look at what he says here as verse 18 continues on. It says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know the hope, or what is the hope of his calling. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. You say, what does that mean? Well, two key words there, calling and hope. Calling refers to God's effectual calling that's brought us into a relationship with himself. And it refers to everything that he's talked about in verses 3 through 14, that the Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, and the Spirit secured these blessings where we have an inheritance in Jesus Christ so that what our future holds is glory. 
What our future holds is the completion of God's plan in our lives. Where if we're in Christ, if we've been redeemed, like we looked at last week, because the Holy Spirit has sealed us, someday we're going to go live in eternity with God, that that is our hope and that's our calling, that our future is secure. This world's not secure. Our circumstances aren't secure. But our future is secure because our future and us are in the hands of God. You see, hope is a biblical word that we tend to misunderstand. Because when we think of hope, we think of it in a hope-so kind of sense, a wishful thinking kind of thing that often disappoints us. I mean, how many times over the last month or so have you said, I hope it doesn't rain today? (laughs) How many times in those weeks have you been disappointed How many times did your hope go unfulfilled? How many times was your wish unrealized? Because that's how we think of hope, but that's not the biblical meaning of the word hope. The Bible word hope is more of a no-so kind of thing than a hope-so kind of thing. It really means a confident expectation that's settled based on the work of God. That's what we're hoping in. We're, we're, hoping in, in the, we're hoping in what God has done for us in Christ, what he's called us to in him. Uh, let's look at a, a couple of scriptures that I think kind of amplify this for us. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are what? Called According to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be, uh, might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's working all things together for good. He's working out his plan that he's called us to in Christ. Uh, you know, it, it says also in that same chapter, those that he called, these he also justified. Those that he justified, these he's also glorified. God is working out his plan for us and in us and through us. Ultimately, our future is secure in him. Listen to 1 Peter 1.3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's, how can we have a secure, no-so kind of hope? It's because we know that Jesus rose from the dead as a historical fact and not a religious belief. And it says it's to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, uh, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, and this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Listen, here, we got to get this. Because sometimes people say, when you talk about heaven, the sweet by and by, the hereafter, you know, all these, I mean, these things sound so great, you know, that God's got my future in his hands. Why does my present seem so hard? Why does my present seem so messed up? Well, he's not promising us here that we won't have trials on the earth. I would say he's indicating the opposite of that. I would say the fact that Paul wrote those words from prison is about as strong of evidence as you're going to get other than the fact that Jesus, God himself, suffered that 
being a Christian or living a Christian faithful life does not exempt us from trials and suffering. But he says that in these trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's doing a work in us through these trials. And these trials may be hard. But they do nothing to remove us from the hand of God. And they do nothing to keep the ultimate plan of God from from being fulfilled. And they do nothing to keep God's will for your life from coming about. In fact, I think we could say he's actually using these trials, working through these trials to bring about his plan and purpose, which is to make us like Christ and to prepare us for what he's preparing for us in heaven someday for his glory. Whose hands do you believe your future's in? I think that's, that's a really important question. There's only so many options. You know, some people believe it's in nobody's hands. It's just all fate, chance. It's just going to happen. Uh, there was a Stoic philosopher in the first century around the time that Paul wrote this, uh, who, who, who wrote this. He says, set your minds free, mortal men. Let your cares go and deliver your lives from all this pointless fuss. Fate rules the world. Everything is bound by certain laws. Eternities are sealed by predetermined events. No one can catch fortune by praying against her will or escape her if she comes close to him. Everyone must bear his appointed lot. That's what some people think. It's fatalism. There's nothing I can do. This world's a mess. What's going to happen is going to happen. And and, and I can't control it. I just kind of got to make it the best I can. On the other hand, there are people, and I think this is pretty common in, in our modern world today, that think our fate rests completely in our hands. It's Based on what I do, it's self-help, it's motivational speaking, it's, you know, you need a life coach and you get things figured out and you do this, this, and this, and you're going to get this, this, and this. Does life really work that way? Does, even if we do the right things, does it always turn out like we want it to? If that's what our hope is in, I think we're going to end up getting disappointed. And even beyond that, even if it works out, that's a lot of weight to carry. Is it not? If it's all in our hands, that's a lot of anxiety. That's a lot of stress. You know, I I listened to a podcast the other day. I listened to Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast most weeks. And he was interviewing a couple of researchers from Fuller Youth Institute. And and, and they were talking about some research they had done with teenagers. And here's some good news. They say statistically that uh, sexual promiscuity alcoholism, drug abuse is statistically down amongst teenagers. Here's some bad news. While those things are statistically down, what's statistically going up among teenagers is stress, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and suicidal attempts. Why? If you're taught that your future completely depends on you, that it all rests in your hands, that you got to make it happen, you got to make it work, and you're 14, 15, 16, 18 years old, and you're trying to figure it out, and you're trying to get a college scholarship, and something doesn't go right, isn't it pretty likely 
that you're going to despair. And what these researchers say is that because kids are exposed to so much so early, 14's the new 24, but now 28's the new 18 because of how people deal with it. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. They grow up fast, and then they regress a lot of times because they don't have the tools to deal with everything that they're facing. And some of them just despair, and they go into a funk, go into depression, maybe try to kill themselves. Whose future or whose hands is your future in? Where are we headed? And see, here's the good news by the grace of God. Our life is not based on our past. Our life is based on where Jesus is taking us. The hope of his calling, the security uh, of our future. There's a story told about a guy named Philip Henry. Some of you may have heard of Matthew Henry. He's a famous uh, Bible commentator. Maybe some of you uh, have, have used that. It's old. I tried when I first started in ministry. I couldn't understand him. Uh, but uh, anyway... Um, but his dad was, was Philip Henry, and he, he met a, a young lady, and they fell in love. But, but this young lady was of a, quote, higher social level than him in a time and a place where that mattered, and it mattered to her parents. It didn't really matter to her because she was a Christian. She thought everybody was equal. But her parents had a problem with him because they thought he was, you know, lower than her. So uh, her father asked her, he says, where's this man, Philip Henry, come from? And her response, is, I think it's pretty awesome. She said, I don't know where he's come from, but I know where he's going. And listen, that's your testimony if you're a Christian. It doesn't really matter where you came from. What matters is that you know where you're going. The hope of his calling, your future is secure in Christ. And he wants us to believe that, deeply understand that, and live according to that. Even when we have questions, even when we don't understand, even when things don't go like we want them to, even when we struggle with things, to know that all things are working together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. You're, you're in his hands if you're in Christ. Your future is in his hands. You can trust him. But let me ask you a question. If you're not in Christ today, if, you, if you're not trusting him, if you've not committed your life to him, where's your future headed? Where's your future headed? Something to think about. Number two, God wants us to deeply understand and live like we are highly valued by him. God wants us to deeply understand and live like we are highly valued by him. That's hard for some of you. Some of you are like, I don't even know if God even cares about me. I mean, you've been through things that have wounded you. Like, where's God? Maybe people have hurt you. Maybe um, Christians, or at least so-called Christians, have mistreated you. Maybe it's hard for you to relate uh, to God as your heavenly father because of what you've experienced from your earthly father. It's hard for you to believe that God values you. Maybe you feel like there, there's a movie that came out, I don't know, a year or two ago, uh, called All the Money in the World. And uh, it, it told a, a true story based on, that came from the biography of J. Paul Getty, the famous oilman who at one time in the 1970s was considered to be the richest man in the world, a billionaire. And one of his grandchildren 
uh, John Paul Getty III was kidnapped in Italy in 1973. And um, the, the kidnappers demanded a ransom from his grandfather of $17 million. Understand, he's a billionaire. And he refused to pay it. Until the kidnappers, after a few months of having uh, his grandson in captivity, basically, <clears throat> um, cut his right ear off, mailed it to his mother. At that point, they negotiated the $17 million down to $2.9 million, of which the grandfather uh, agreed to pay $2.2 million, which was the highest amount by law that he could take a tax deduction on. And then he gave him the other 700000 with interest. And they got the grandson back. Uh, when the grandson called to thank him, he wouldn't take his call and had whoever it was that took the call for him tell him good luck. Uh, the, the grandson uh, really struggled after this, was paralyzed after a drug overdose at the age of 24. Do you think he felt valued by his grandfather? And honestly, that's how some people look at God. They think, I hear about this God who has everything, but what's he doing for me? But I want you to see what he says about us here in verse 18. He says that he wants us to know not just the hope of his calling, but he wants us to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, let's think about this phrase for a minute. If, if, if you remember, if you're new, if you, if you look back in the verses before, th this is about the fourth time in this chapter he talks about an inheritance. And, and, and he said in, in verse 14, talking about the Holy Spirit, he says he's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, there's a couple of things I want to explain here. The purchased possession What's that mean? What that means is, if you're in Christ, you're God's purchased possession. You belong to him because he paid the price on Calvary. God the Son redeemed you from your sins to adopt you into the family of God and bring you into a relationship with himself. You're his, excuse me, purchased possession. You, you cost God. God. God's not a God who wasn't willing to pay a ransom for you. He gave himself to ransom you from your sins. He paid the ultimate price for us. That's how much he values you. And, and, and here's the thing that even makes that even more awesome. He doesn't value us because we're so valuable. I'm, I'm, this isn't a Joel Osteen sermon where I tell you to look in, your, in the mirror and tell yourself how awesome you are and how great you are and how loved you are and the, how you can do everything and go live your best life now. No, listen, we're, we're, we're dust. We're depraved. We're broken. We're unlovely. We've rebelled against God. We've sinned. We've done our own thing. But God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. That's grace. 
He, he doesn't value us because we're so valuable. He values us for his glory. And he, he says here the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He's glorified in us by taking the broken and forgiving them, redeeming them, saving them, restoring them, making them whole. And, and when it says here his inheritance in the saints, there's two different ways that the word inheritance is used in these verses. One is, it's, it, you know, when you think of inheritance, you think of, you know, you're in the will and you're getting uh, whatever. You're getting a million dollars in your dreams, right? Uh, that, that's your inheritance. Well, he says here, our inheritance is not material things, but it's every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But even before that, our inheritance is based on a relationship with God where he's saying, you're my inheritance, I'm your inheritance, we have each other and then on top of that I'm eternally securing you and giving you all these blessings and listen every one of us in this room if we're honest wants a parent who loves us unconditionally and blesses us materially to the best that they can listen some of you you struggle with God you know my wife she shared her testimony before her, her father's deceased now, but I mean, he was a successful businessman. He blessed his kids financially, which is great. But you know, you know what they wanted? They wanted him. I mean, Robbins told me about her high school uh, choir and drama director, Randy Adams at West High School, you know, asking her why her dad never came to her programs. That was the desire of her heart. She wanted that more than much. She wanted him. And listen, we have a God who gives us himself. And then he gives us every spiritual blessing on top of that. That's the inheritance that he's talking about. That's how much he values us. And listen, he wants us to believe that, to know that, to live according to that. And I think if we can really believe this and accept this, it changes so much. It changes how we see ourselves. It changes our security. Listen, we don't have to live our lives trying to please everybody else. We don't have to live our lives giving in to temptation because we're looking for some kind of something to fill us up that we don't have we can know who we are in him what we have in him what he's done for us we can know just the, the power of unconditional love which is what all of our hearts long for he says know believe act like live like your future secure live like that you're highly valued by me but then the last thing here is he wants us to deeply understand and live like his power is in us. If you look at verse 19, it's, it's an amazing verse. Because Paul seems to exhaust his vocabulary in trying to describe the power of God working toward, in, for, through the life of a believer. He uses four different Greek words here that are some variation on the word power. But, but he starts out and he talks about the exceeding greatness of his power. And in Greek, what's translated exceeding greatness here is the word that, that, that you use when something's basically immeasurable. 
I mean, when you run out of numbers to quantify something or words to describe something, when it's something without end, something without limit, maybe mathematically you would say to the nth degree or infinity or something like that, that's how he's trying to describe God's power here. And, and, and this is hard for us if we're real about it. I mean, if we're honest, I mean, I, I don't think I'm the only one that's thinking this. Like, I read this, it's like, why don't I experience more of this power? But notice how he describes this power. It was the exceeding greatness of power towards us to believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Notice this, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And everything else that he, he, he talks about here, he, he, he talks about four ways here that, that, that he's, this power is manifested in Christ. It's all connected to the resurrection. But here's the point. The resurrection power of Jesus, if you're a Christian, is in you today, right now. It doesn't pop up on Easter Sunday. It's 24-7, 365 days a year that this immeasurable power, that think about it, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that physically put life back in his mortal body, that spiritually defeated Satan and demons and death and hell and the grave, that power is working toward us and in us and for us and through us all the time. We just don't live like we're plugged into the power source a lot of the time. So this power that we have in Christ is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. But look at what else it did. It says it seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And what this is talking about, you know, when Scripture talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, that's what it's referring to. And that place at the right hand of the Father is the place of honor and glory and exaltation and power and authority from which Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, rules and reigns over this entire universe. And the same power that raised him from the dead and exalted him up to that position is working in you right now if you're in Christ. That's what he's saying. And then he says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He says, far above. Listen, whatever's coming against you in your life, Jesus is far above it. Any attack that Satan is placing in your life, Jesus is far above it. Do we believe that? And then he says he's put all things under his feet. He's ruling and reigning over all. I know we don't fully see that now. It's not going to be fully manifest until he comes back. He's giving evil a season, a space, so that more people can be saved. But don't mistake the fact that someday he is going to come back and everything and everybody is going to know that Jesus is reigning and ruling over all. But then he says, he gave him to be head over all things. He's over all things in the universe. But he did this to the church, which is his body. Do you understand, church, that the church, I'm not talking about true life. I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about just individual people here and there. But the church, the body of Christ, all the redeemed of all the ages, whether on heaven, whether in heaven or on earth, everybody who's going to be saved when it's all said and done is the body of Christ of which Jesus is our head, the ruling and the reigning Lord. But it says here that we're, he's the head, we're the body, we're connected to him. 
But it says here that he's the fullness, or the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you say, uh, what does this mean? And I'm just going to touch on it today. When we get into Ephesians chapter 2, we'll spend a few weeks talking about the church. But Kenneth Wiest has written this. He says, as the mystical body of Christ... The fellowship of believers is regarded as an organic spiritual unity in a living relation to Christ, subject to him, animated by him, and having his power operating in it. He goes on to say that the fullness of the divine powers and qualities which are in Christ is imparted by him to his church so that the church, the body of Christ, the the true church, is pervaded by his presence, I love that phrase, animated by his life, and filled with his energies and gifts and graces. Listen to me. The church is not a building. The church is not an institution. The church is not any one local church. The church, the body of Christ, we're the hands and feet of Jesus, connected to him, living in union with him, our life being imparted from him to us. And it says that we're his fullness, that we're his hands and feet. What he's doing in the world, he's doing through us. He's put the church here to fulfill his mission, and he's empowering the church leading the church, ruling over the church as its head. And listen, if we're walking with him, in connection with him, doing what his word says, he is going to do great and mighty and powerful things through the church. This is a biblical view of the church. This is how God wants us to see the church. Once again, if we saw that, it would change a whole lot of things. It would change. You ever heard Christians, maybe some of you say this, probably more likely somebody listening online said this. You ever heard people say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Can I tell you, you're defaming the Son of God, the head of the church, when you say things like that. The church is the bride of Christ. You can't love Jesus without loving his bride. If we saw the church, like you know, if, if, his, if his presence is pervading the church, listen, we come together. When you come to church, you don't come to find Jesus. You bring him with you. And as we come together jointly, the presence of God is among us, and we can worship him out of that overflow of his presence being with us. If we see ourselves as his hands and feet, is there going to be any question of whether we're going to live on Jesus' mission or not, of whether we're going to tell others about him, of whether we're going to use our spiritual gifts and, and serve. He's the head of the church. We're his body. He's filling us up. We're his fullness. You know, in a sense, and this is hard to understand, you know, Paul said that the sufferings of Christ are made complete as we share the gospel. And of course, Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to save us, but he has chosen to work through his church where and to fulfill his plan of making disciples of all nations. It's going to happen through us as we spread the gospel. It's incredible power. You say, why don't I experience it? Well, think about it. Simple analogy. Some of you have maybe like a movie pass card in your, in your billfold or your purse. You know, where you can go to a movie every day or so many a week or so many a month or something like that. But you hadn't seen a movie in a year. You've got access to it, but it's not doing you any good if that pass is in your card. 
Or some of you, you, you got a gym membership card in your billfold. But you've gained 20 pounds with that uh, gym membership card in your billfold. Because you've got access to the gym anytime it's open because you're a member. But as long as you leave the membership card in your billfold, it's not doing you any good. Some of you have some gift cards from Christmas or maybe a couple of Christmases ago in your billfold. And, but they're not doing you any good as long as they sit in your billfold. You go have a good meal. You go buy something. But unless you access it, it's not going to help you. Listen, the power of Jesus is in our lives. But unless we access it, we're not going to experience it. As long as we're trying to do it on our own. As, as long as we are, you know, not walking in the spirit, not trusting, as long as we don't believe these things, when we believe Satan's lies, if, you know, if we're not connected to him, it's like, I mean, there's a lot of wiring. There's a lot of electricity in this room. It takes some crazy stuff, you know, to power a band. But you go unplug a couple of cables and a couple of cords, there ain't nothing happening because they're not connected to the power source. It's the same way with us. You know, when Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You know what he was saying? He was saying, live connected to the power source. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to give you a chance to respond. And we're going to give you a chance to, to respond publicly in a minute if you feel like you need to. We're going to sing, Open the Eyes of My Heart again. I hope we can sing it like a prayer again. If, if you need to talk, you need to pray, I'll be here at the front. If you need somebody to explain to you uh, about becoming a Christian, I'll be here. We can have somebody help you with that. If you just feel like you need to come and pray, if you want to come to the right side of the, of the altar, you're right. That'll indicate you want to be alone with God. If you come to the left, it'll indicate you want somebody to pray with you. But here's what I want you to think about. If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to wrestle with this. I've been wrestling with this because I want to experience more of this. I just don't want to hear about it, talk about it. I want to experience it. What is it in your life that's keeping you from being connected to the power source, that's keeping you from believing this and experiencing this? Will you pray and ask God to show you that? Will you pray and ask God to open the eyes of your heart and, and to give you the faith to believe and act on what he's saying here? Will you, like Paul did, pray that for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Listen, the power, the resurrection power of Jesus working in your life can break addictions, it can heal marriages, it can restore families, it can deliver you from depression, it can deliver you from fear. It, there's that much power that's there. Some of you sitting here, you're not connected to this because you're not a Christian. And Satan's trying to tell you that this really can't be true. It's, it's if it sounds too good to be true, it, it is too good to be true. The God's like that mean old grandfather who he really wouldn't come through for you. But listen, the Bible says in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrated his love towards you and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He proved his love on the cross. He died for you. Where if you'll repent of your sins, if you'll admit you're a sinner, you'll admit you've rebelled against God, you'll admit that you can't save yourself, you'll admit that you need him, and you'll turn from yourself, 
and by faith turn your life over to him. If you'll trust in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection for your salvation. Confess him. Acknowledge him as the Lord of your life. He'll forgive you. He'll come into your life and cleanse you and make you new and give you a hope and a future and a power to be different. And he invites you just to call on his name right now. Or like I say, if you need to talk to somebody, if we can help you explain that to you, we'd love to do that. Father, in the name of Jesus, open the eyes of our hearts. We ask that the Holy Spirit would just enlighten us Give us a knowledge of you. Lord, draw people to yourself. Help us to respond in the way that we need to. Lord, help us not just to hear about this, but God, by your grace, to actually experience it. When I ask these things through Jesus, I want.